to the Word of God and conclude the prophecy of Habakkuk. In the Bibles in the pews, we'll be looking at page 787, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Let's draw near to God in prayer. Again, our Father, we humble ourselves before you. You have spoken to us in these last days, no longer simply by prophets in the Old Testament, as good, as vital as they are. You have revealed and spoken to us in your beloved Son. And we pray with all of our inclination to run away from his holiness and righteousness, with all of our self-doubt and self-exaltation, with our pride, with our shame. We might be captivated by the Son of God, that we might see in him fully our righteousness, our joy, our salvation. May Jesus be more precious to us. May we see him with greater clarity and love him with greater fervency as we hear of him in the prophecy of Habakkuk tonight. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of God. You get a picture here of devastation and deep disappointment that really runs through all of Habakkuk. And I was always contemplating how to perhaps set this before you. I remembered... A dear sister of ours in Karamoja, one of the best believers I know, Joyce, who was given land. Owning land in Karamoja is no small thing. To have land is to maybe have a life ahead of you. And out of tremendous poverty, living in mud huts made of sticks, with constant sickness and struggle, Joyce had been given this land. And then someone came and contested the land took her to court. The evidence was clear. It belonged to her. The judge was prepared to make a decision. And the morning of, he gave it to the other contestant. And Joyce came to work that day, almost as if nothing had happened. Here were her hopes, really her hopes for the future, shattered. She said, I own nothing in this world. The only land I'm going to have is about six feet in the ground. But I know I have Christ. 
Now that is something of the flavor that we come to here at the end of Habakkuk. We begin this whole prophecy with a sense of doubt and discouragement. And we end in a sort of confident trust and hope in God. Not without fear, but real confidence and hope. Habakkuk is trusting that the Lord will in fact hear him. That the Lord will have mercy. He will revive his work in the midst of the years. And it seems as though even here at the end, this is really the Lord's reviving work in Habakkuk himself. Clinging to God by faith. Clinging to God in his promises. Even singing. You notice what it says. Verse 1 of this chapter. It's according to Shigianoth, which is a, a sort of musical term. And then at the end, verse 19, to the choir master with strings instruments. This is a song. We, this is not what we would have expected. We've been reading in chapter 2 of the woes on Babylon, the terror of God coming in chapter 3 as a warrior to destroy Babylon and ultimately to eradicate all the sins of his people. This seems like nothing to sing about. But faith can sing. There can be great joy and great delight because of who God really is. I'd like to put this before you then with a sort of proposition. I hope you'll take the heart. Maybe you'll want to write it down. Maybe you can remember it. I hope you'll take it home with you. I hope you'll live by it as I hope to do myself. That the greatest evil cannot take my joy in Christ because I am safe in him. That's why faith can sing. The greatest evil cannot take my joy in Christ because I am safe in him. Verse 17, we have an allusion to that greatest evil the great evils of this life. A great painting long ago, well, not so long ago, 1975, Rembrandt's Night Watch was on display and a man came in, apparently mentally disturbed, with a knife and he cut these jagged rips into this beautiful Rembrandt. Monet was preparing for an exhibition of his artwork in 1908, it had already been reviewed by critics who thought very highly of it. It was expected to fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was dissatisfied, and he utterly destroyed it. Art vandalism. Vandalism of beauty is really a sense of what we have going on here. The fig tree, the fruit, the produce of the olive, fields, flock, herd, those beautiful things that God gave to his people are to be utterly destroyed, taken away, vandalized, and corrupted. Terribly marred. We read of these same promises in Deuteronomy. For instance, in chapter 8, verse 8, it says, God telling his people that he is bringing them to a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Did you catch some of those trees there? Some of the plant life that God is bringing them to. A place, he says later in that same chapter, verse 13, for growing flocks and herds. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12, it is a land protected and cared for by the Lord. Now, can you imagine living in that sort of place? Just out there in the backyard, you can go and enjoy your favorite things. You can even sit under the shade of your, of your fig tree and delight in knowing that God has set you here God has freely given, he says in Deuteronomy 6, these houses they didn't build, vineyards and olive trees they didn't plant, and he freely gives, and he says, take, eat, enjoy all that I have for you. Wonderful, 
covenant promises, a glorious picture, really, of the renewal of God's kingdom, and finally, of the perfection and radiance that we will delight in in the new creation. And Habakkuk says all of this is to be marred, destroyed, cut to pieces. Because, if we can use that language of paintings, Israel has pictured the blessings of God without the God of the blessings. Maybe you've seen a really beautiful picture and had that that momentary sort of fleeting emotion thinking, I wish I could go there. It just looks so beautiful. Have you ever experienced that? I even had a dream of a, a really gorgeous place. I can remember having dreams like this when I was very little. Waterfalls and mountains it was for me. Just delighting. I wish I could go there, but I can't. Israel has this picture. God has given to them his blessings, but they don't have God in the picture. It was never God's purpose that the scene would be without him, that he, our Redeemer, would be absent from his blessings. It was not the blessings that were central to his gift. They were the result. They were the outcome of God's gracious presence. And there can be no blessing from God without God himself. Fellowship with God is the cornerstone of every other blessing. So if there are blessings in your life that you're enjoying and God is not the one from whom you know they come, or you sense in your heart that perhaps you'd really like to keep God on the side over there and just enjoy those things, then, dear friend, don't expect those to last because that was never his purpose. All of these blessings in Deuteronomy, we've read some of the promises here, Come with a warning label. It's very interesting. Whenever God mentions, I'm bringing you to this sort of a land, I'm giving you these gifts, I'm presenting to you rest and delight, he'll say things like this. Beware. Beware that you don't forget the Lord. Beware that we don't crop him out of the scene. And Israel has done this. Think of the ways in which God speaks through the prophet Habakkuk of their sins against him. We could go back to chapter 1 and there again read of Habakkuk's complaint. Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Verse 2, and you will not hear, cry to you even violence and you will not save. Look at how your covenant is being marred. Look at how your people are sinning against you. Not only violence... The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. This is not how it's supposed to be. And so God comes, as we've read multiple times in this prophecy, in his terrifying wrath, to bring the curse of his covenant and demolish, apparently to demolish, the beauty of his promise. It is not a madman who comes but an all-wise, perfect God to demolish the beautiful things. He said he would remove these things from them, and now he promises to do it. Habakkuk sees. What good is there left in the land? There is no food at all, not even a bread line you can sign up for. The livestock that are part of Israel's menu, necessary for worship, 
are no longer there. God's blessings have been played backward, and now there is much worse than they began with. This is what he had made covenant with them and told them that he would do. And so he would send Babylon, the wicked nation, to deal with their iniquity and punish his people for the ways in which they are removing him, the great blessing, and taking away the great gift himself. Now, if that's true for Israel, how much more for us? We upon whom, as the Apostle Paul says, the ends of the ages have come. We are not part of an old covenant that was fading away and needed to be replaced, as Hebrews says. We have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Zion itself by the Spirit of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are raised up to his glory. How much more serious for us who know the benefits of our Redeemer to put him onto the side and gladly receive his gifts with the other hand. Our God is a consuming fire. And a people that do not walk with him will soon find out that he is against them just as the people of Judah do in the days of Habakkuk. If we forget God, if we mar and paint him out of the scene of all of his gifts, we set ourselves up for the same judgments and God will be faithful to his covenant to you and to me. He will come. Even if we are faithless, he is still faithful. He will not deny himself. He will not deny the covenant that he's made. He will certainly discipline his children. And we know this. And yet how easy it is, isn't it, for our sinful desires to attach to the comforts of this world and not to Jesus. To find our delights in lesser things and not have our hearts turning up to him, our hearts growing cold. If you've walked with God very long, you know this experience. That even just with all your desire to follow after God, there are those days, there are those moments. Maybe there is that many-year pattern of simply wandering from the Lord in heart. And maybe it isn't even recognizable to us. But we find lesser things better. And we forget to marvel at God and his grace. And even imagine sometimes that what we have, these good gifts, our prosperity, our success, our superior insight, are all from us. And then God, in his great grace... A consuming fire who inhabits his people not to consume and destroy, but to consume away all sin comes to deal with us. As he does here. As our confession says, God does sometimes remove the light of his countenance. And there are times we feel the power of that anger in our life. Maybe you feel the brevity of life, comforts withdrawn, sorrows multiplying, This is what Habakkuk envisions, not just the loss of outward blessings, not just of delightful fruits or meat. There's a loss, really, of all hope in this world. There is nothing hopeful at all in what Habakkuk can see. 
how unstable our hearts are, really. To take God's promise and to take his blessings and to choose his blessings over the one who is the giver. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? God's purpose in his judgments on his people is never the destruction of what he has made beautiful, but the restoration of what is truly beautiful. This is why he must, in the beginning, judge the world. When Adam and Eve sin, he must enact his purpose that we would die for our sins. Think of Adam and Eve there. We read of figs here in Habakkuk, enjoying the delightful fruit of the fig tree until... They sin, and then they try, rather than delighting in God's gifts, to hide themselves in its leaves, to take God's gifts and use them against him as if they could protect themselves with what God has made. But you know the story. We experience daily the story that God cursed the ground, undid all the blessings of the earth and its produce, and declared that it would no longer be fruitful. And that fullness of the penalty of what we have gotten through Adam and by our own wicked hearts is yet coming. There is going to be a day when the earth and the heavens will together be consumed, Peter tells us, with fervent heat. The whole world lies under that sin and judgment, groaning, subjected to vanity. And yet, this is the good news, that a new creation has come in God's judgment on his beloved Son. Again, these Judgments of God confirm that he is faithful. If God did not come with judgment, with discipline, with wrath upon unbelievers, we would have no certainty of his faithfulness in Christ. But God is a keeper of his covenant. God does not set out his judgments simply that Israel might learn to do better. We're used to this, aren't we? We're used to a kind of moralistic instruction in this life where we are taught, you you failed in that, get the bad job evaluation, maybe if you're younger you get some discipline at home, and you're supposed to correct and you're supposed to reform. This is not the ultimate purpose. God sends his judgment on unfaithful and failing Israel and even sinful believers that we might look to him and not ourselves. This is the whole design of God. That we would look away from ourselves. Look away, yes, even from our sins, to a faithful Savior. What is the fundamental demand of God's covenant? Perfect law-keeping. How do we keep that law? By our best ambitions and activities? Never. But by God's covenanted grace a grace given to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled all righteousness for us. That is the judgment of God. Christ upon the cross. Christ enduring the sins that we have have committed and the judgment upon them. God, faithful to his covenant for your wandering from from him in heart, from your false delight in the world, God pours out his wrath upon his Son. Because he is a faithful God, determined to keep his covenant. Determined. 
that we would have a real and full salvation. This is really what is brought before us as Habakkuk sees the devastation. Evil times, evil things. Why does God reveal his judgments to us? Why does he send judgments upon the world? The answer is very simple. That we might believe in him. That our faith might be grounded on something other than ourselves or anything else in creation. That we would believe in the God of salvation. Do you notice that this is the flow, really, of all of Habakkuk's prophecy? He hears of God's judgments, and then we come right up to the end. It's the climax. It's a kind of wonderful crescendo. It's a quiet one, but it's there. Though the fig tree should not blossom, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. What is God's purpose in giving to us the scrolls of judgment in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. We just go on through all the prophets. Why are they there? As you are reading your Bible. Isn't it true? Many times we read these things and we scratch our heads and say, I don't know who these people were. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why this matters to me. What's the point of this in the Bible? The point is very simple. These are not angular, strange, or dislocated things. We are meant not to suppress a bewildered yawn, but to see here our necessary faith in Christ. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will likewise perish. You are meant to behold a faithful God in the judgments of God. A faithful God who has given us salvation and life by the judgment he placed upon his Son. Now, to let you in on a little bit of a secret, I'm not much of a sports fan. I know that's probably heresy in Wisconsin. I suspect there are some Packer fans here, however. And can you just imagine, if you're a Packer fanatic, maybe you have the shirt, maybe you have the bumper sticker, okay. Maybe you have the tickets, I don't know. But can you imagine watching Aaron Rodgers out there and saying, hey, buddy, you didn't complete this time. How about I step in for you? Which Packer fan in their right mind would go out onto the field and say, get out of here, buddy. I can do 100%. (laughs) You and I are meant to look away from earthly saviors, from any hope in this world, from any of our righteousness when we contemplate the judgments of God, to not a quarterback, not a guy who makes completions on a pretty good percentage, but to a redeemer who completes 100%. Never fails. Always delivers from the wrath and guilt of our sin. Faith in the judgments of God looks away and doesn't say, I could do better. We look to a redeemer and trust in him. The greatest of evils is held out to us that we would remember that they cannot take our joy in Christ. Verse 18. From faith in Christ, we move to joy in Christ. Great evil. And some of us have experienced great evils. Bitterness of soul due to sorrow, due to a sense perhaps of abandonment by God or some other person. Deep struggles. And Habakkuk looks upon the devastation and the sense of God's abandonment and the deep trouble over Israel's sin and his own heart, and all this wretchedness, and he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. 
when was the last time something really bad happened and you said that? I think it seems to me that many times it is when the really, really bad things happen that maybe we are enabled by grace to respond and say that. But in ordinary life, when the bad things come up, isn't our tendency to just look at our circumstances and be totally demoralized? No fig on the tree? I can't believe it. No flocks in the stalls? What are we going to eat? No, he says, I rejoice and the Lord. He isn't blind to what's going to happen. He isn't sort of cutting the spiritual nerve so that he can get through this. He is actually seeing so beautifully, so clearly, God's picture, the reality, not simply pictured, of God with his blessings, really coming into focus here at the conclusion of this prophecy. I will rejoice in the Lord. I want you to see three things about joy in God here. And first is that our righteous God is the source of our joy. We have many delights in the creation. We even have songs about them. These are a few of my favorite things. Just a few, right? I suspect we all have a lot of favorite things. Maybe pizza for some of the young people. I don't know. There are things we love that are made and that are gifts to God. What if he takes them all away? What if he takes the best things, the things you really treasure? There can only be joy in God if we are utterly persuaded that those things in themselves are not the source of our joy, but the God who gives them. That it is God himself in all of his righteous acts, who is our ultimate joy. Habakkuk, struggling with all that is coming, all that Israel has done, all that God is going to do, really comes to terms here with God's righteous character. Why can you and I rejoice when a spouse dies? Why can we rejoice and say, my joy is in the Lord, when you have to file for bankruptcy because God is righteous even in the most evil circumstances. Whatever may come will not dissolve. It is no solvent to his perfect, wise, and holy and upright dealings. The worst that can come upon you will never undo the reality that God is righteous And even better than that, not just righteous in his character, but righteous in our salvation, Christ having fulfilled all righteousness. I will rejoice, he says, in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God does not simply have character that is upright and outstanding. That that could be a, a fairly distant thing from us. No, he has come to us with his perfect righteousness. He has met his own righteous standard. He keeps his own law for us who are sinful, who turn away from him, even as we heard this morning in the sermon, once healed, who continue to sin against him by giving to us his beloved son. If God gives to us his beloved son, the righteous one and the holy one, 
then what Paul says in Romans 8 absolutely must be true. This is the logic, or we might say the grammar of the gospel. How will he not with him freely give us all things? You lose everything? Do you still have Jesus? Dear friend, how rich you are. He is the source, but he is also better. God is better than all things. And our joy in him should far surpass the joy that is possible from created things. The worst thing that can happen cannot possibly take away the joy that is in Jesus. You can suffer the loss of all things. Paul says that he has. But if you don't lose Christ, you have the greatest joy. Our joy in a saving God is beyond all earthly happiness. It puts its roots down into something much deeper. Think about the things that we do delight in. Okay, back to pizza for a minute. You eat the pizza and then it's done. And it really doesn't do much for you, does it? Every pleasure is really like this. Every delight, every good thing in this world doesn't in the end do much for you, but God is far greater. Our comforts can be destroyed and God remain and our joy can continue. And this is why Paul, writing from a prison cell, think of this, writing from a prison cell, this is not the kind of manicured residence where you get three meals a day and you get to watch television until your court date. Paul in prison, shackled probably with lots of sores, struggling to sleep at night, in a rat-infested prison, maybe no food, probably struggling with great sickness and cold, says, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Paul understands this, dear believer, that God is greater than all other joys. And so the loss of things in this world should not diminish our delight in God. It should rather teach us again to lay hold of God as greater than all creaturely joys. If God removes all your supports, he will never remove himself from you. And if he does that, it will only be to settle you and I more firmly in joy on him. Because, and this is a third thing, joy in the Lord is stable. Or as one of our hymns puts it, solid, a solid joy. The words here, rejoicing in the Lord, taking joy in the God of my salvation, are not just a kind of quiet inward strength. This is like exuberant delight. The last thing you'd expect when everything is cut off from the field and your flocks are no more because of Babylonian captivity or some other cause. Joy and exultation in God is not situational. It is situated in God, God dependent. You can stare the worst thing in the face, the greatest evil, and have undiminished joy if your joy is in the Lord. Because you can say again, my God is righteous even in this. I may not see the righteousness of his actions yet, but I know he is still righteous. I know he is doing righteousness. And we must be persuaded of that. We must be persuaded of that. That's the essence of faith. To be convinced, to be convicted, to have that inward certainty 
that is the gift of the Spirit of God, that what God is and what God does is better than all else. Think of the early church and its martyrs. Some endured great torture, terror. Many were given the opportunity to offer incense to the emperor or say, just say the word, Caesar is Lord, you can go home and still worship Jesus. And they didn't. And they knew what the outcome would be. And they ran into the jaws of death because they had a greater joy. And this is nothing less than what our Savior has done. We read in Hebrews 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He despised the shame. It was a real cross. It was real shame. He did not delight in the shame of the cross. But there was a greater joy. True communion with the true and righteous God was set before him. Just imagine the questions if, if Jesus had been, perhaps we might say like Habakkuk, the questions he could have raised to his father. Is this really righteous that the Son of God would die? That he would die, and especially for the sins of his people. Is this really righteous to undergo great suffering for the salvation of others? There is never a moment of questioning, is there? There is that deep moment with which we can so greatly empathize. Perhaps many moments where we see our Savior suffering and knowing the weight of it before he goes to the cross. But there is never a question, is this really right? Is this really good? No, there's joy. A solid joy that persists all the way to death and all the way to resurrection. That is walking by faith. And that is what we get here at the end of Habakkuk, find him doing, walking by faith, walking in a joy that faith alone lays hold of by laying hold of Christ. It's good that we do a self-inventory. What are my comforts? What's going to happen to them if they all fail? Probably if you were Ukrainian about a year ago, you never would have thought that you would live to see the days that they're in. What would happen to us? To know the location of our comforts and joys, we should ask the question, what do I feel like I need to protect? And consequently, sometimes, what do I get angry about or discouraged about? What causes me to fear? Isn't it glorious that the one thing you don't need to protect, the one thing in all that is that you don't need to protect is the one thing that is the most precious and can never be taken from you? Christ and all that he is to you. So we should take joy. And that is an activity of faith. Take joy in the Lord. We move then to the full expression of this statement coming to verse 19. The greatest evil in this life cannot take my joy in Christ because I am safe in him. God, the Lord, he says, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. It's a remarkable thing here. Out of utter defeat and desolation, he says, God makes me to walk on the high places. High places are a place of safety. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. What do you do if you're out on a trail somewhere and a bear comes? Well, you hope you're a really great climber, right? 
Because you're probably not fast enough. Isn't that our instinct to go up? To get up in elevation. If a tsunami is coming, what do you do? You get up in elevation. If you're in battle, what kind of location do you want to situate yourself on? The high places. He says, in effect, God makes me dwell in safety. Now, you or I, if we went up on a high place, ah, we can probably be gotten at. But if you and I were deer, and we had the nimble feet of a deer, and we could go up onto the high places, who can chase a deer over the tops of the mountains? I remember one time in Glacier National Park watching as uh, the mountain goats there came along these crags in places that I could never dream of getting to. This is what Habakkuk is saying God does. He sets me in such safety that nobody can get me. It's impossible to catch me. And there's a kind of taunting almost about this, a mockery of all who would assault and attack us because by our faith in Christ, we're seated in the heavenly places beyond the reach of all attack. Satan cannot get you. Babylonians may come, destroy your life, take away your home, take away your family, and yet you are safe. There can never be anything that will come between you and the love of God. Utterly safe. And we know that safety by faith. This is a promise of victory. This is what, again, referring to Deuteronomy, we read in chapter 32, verse 13 there, speaking of, of God's work for, on behalf of Israel, he made him ride on the high places of the land and ate the produce of the field. This is a kind of statement of God giving victory to his people over the land. And notice what Habakkuk is saying. Here's this land devastated, and God is going to give me victory. God is going to give me possession. God will give you the possession of his promises. There can never be any doubt about that. And David can sing of this. Second Samuel 22, he repeats it again. Psalm 18, verse 33, speaking of his deliverance from Saul and all of his enemies, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights, which Habakkuk quotes. So, do circumstances seem too difficult? Do enemies rise against us? Our sins press upon us? Our conscience accuse us? Do we even feel as though we must be at last flattened by the anger of God? Habakkuk says, never. Never. I will be safe from all harm by the power of God. His strength is my joy and my salvation. We are so inclined to trust in this world that that's difficult to believe. To trust in what we can see. And, dear friends... If we could see clearly, if we could see the scene as it really is in glory, then we would see that our life is actually hidden with Christ and God. And there can never be any attack upon the people of God. Your life is sustained by Jesus. And the source of all that is good is what he is to you. Whatever other things come, whatever circumstances might be, you and I can rejoice and the greatest evil, he is our salvation. As we conclude, Thomas Boston puts it this way, that Christ fully satisfies us in all conditions. And I would suggest that because of that, we can sing. We can actually sing. Or another way to put this, by faith, 
We hold on to Jesus despite apparently contrary providences. It's wonderful what Romans chapter 4 verse 20 says, and other places allude to as well, speaking of Abraham and his confidence in God's promise of the giving of a son. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen again to that. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. God is greatly glorified. He is much magnified when his people hold on to him in the darkness. When his people sing and everything is cut off, even their own life. We live, perhaps, most of us, in days of prosperity. We can be assured trials will come, but we live in a community, in a country of prosperity, and before hardship and loss press in, we should go to the ant and learn her ways and be wise and stock up, prepare the food for our souls in the summertime. We need to teach our souls, dear believers, not in these days to take our comfort in the world and wait until God removes it all so that we can then learn that our real hope and joy, our salvation is in God. Dear friends, I suggest that this is one of the greatest struggles that we have. We are so surrounded with gifts. And consequently, because of our fleshly struggle, so enamored with them that we oftentimes don't realize what true joy is until it's all taken away. Now is the time for us to teach our souls the value of God himself beyond all earthly comforts to settle our hearts in heaven. Those are lasting joys. Those are solid things. And when the time of testing comes, when the darkness settles in, you will find out that you have something far greater, dear believer. So, this is not just a statement of things to come. It's an exhortation to us to rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we praise you. You are the source of all that is good. And there is so much joy for us, infinite joy and filled with glory, surpassing joy in your character, in your person, in your work. And so we pray, increase our faith. Lord, we know our faith is so weak, but we pray that you would settle our faith firmly on Jesus. Help us more to find out the glory of Christ, the stability of Christ, the worthiness of Christ, that we might in these days find our joy flowing from him, a joy that cannot be taken from us. Help us, O God. You know our weak condition. You know our unbelief. And we call upon you, O God, to give us more of yourself, more realization of that blessed union and communion which we have with you through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.